Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. All right, friends, I have return guest, friend of the pod, friend of me, basically the unofficial co-host at this point, Lisa Mullinax today. <laughs> Welcome back, Hello. Lisa. Thank you. So today we are talking about safe setups for stranger directed aggression consults. So this is for the dog pros. Also, if you are a pet owner and you are facing some of these challenges, you know, not bad for you to have this information. So if you're not, you know, totally bored of it, not bad for you to have this information because as we've discussed a few times, you know, not all dog pros are created equal and the person you hire may be missing some of this information. And I also think it could be helpful if you're not a dog pro, but if you listen to this podcast, you are in the dog you're, world. You're and... a geek. I mean, let's just be like, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're a dog nerd. If you listen to this podcast, whether exactly. you're a dog pro or not. So it'll, yeah. And also we're going to share stories of how we almost died. So everyone's going to want yeah. to hear that. Absolutely. <laughs> so also, I just want to point out up top that I, in the beginning of my career, worked quite a few of these cases but I really don't work them now. Um, it's not really a rule. It's just pretty low on the list of things that people ask me for. And, you know, I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of interesting. We could explore why that is on a later day. So I do work with dogs that have this problem on occasion. I have one pretty significant case in the last few years that we worked through really severe stranger directed aggression. That is a dog that, I expect to do great things in the dog world. And when she does, I'll tell you all about it, but <laughs> she's got to go, she's got to go win some, some things first. And I've had a few others that had stranger directed feelings in addition to the other stuff we were working on. And sometimes it's kind of a thing that we uncover as we go. Like somebody will come to me and say, the dog's got stress at agility trials and we'll find out that actually the dog's had a few incidences of stranger directed aggression and the dog has stranger directed feelings and we need to work that out. So that's kind of how I work, but you work the way folks might expect when we say stranger directed aggression case, going to people's homes and working with them with their dogs who bit the mailman, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> It is or the a Girl Scout. Yeah, or oh know. my gosh, please, <laughs> please don't bite the Girl Scout. Please leave it to the mailman. And so that's a huge, huge part of your day-to-day business. And so that's why yeah. I really consider you one of the foremost experts actually in our field on this topic and really excited to get into it with you today. I yeah. think that I'll probably even learn a few things. I like, I'm excited to talk about this. So we're going to start with stories of times we almost died. Lisa, you begin. So, um, yeah, this was, I don't know, 15 ish, 20 ish years ago. So very new in my career. 
And, you know, I was feeling pretty confident in my abilities because, of course, the dog that got me into this business was a dog with significant stranger-directed aggression. Or at least I thought it was significant. So in this particular case, it was a, I was told it was a pit bull mix. Found out later it's a Cane Corso, so very large. Um, And I was called out because of some um, dog-directed aggression. And so at the time, I would just, you know, have a quick call with someone on the phone, say, yeah, I can help you with that. And I, you know, headed out to the house for the appointment, walked in the house. The dog was out in the yard, door closed. And the woman said, well, why don't we go and sit out here? I don't really bring him in the house much. First red flag. She goes out (laughs) the sliding glass door. And I follow her. The dog sees her and happily starts running up to greet her. Then out of the corner of his eye sees me, rushes me, pins me up against a corner in the house or of the house and was standing on me at neck level, frozen, stiff, growling. Oh, God. Um, And he's like, he's as tall as you. Like when he puts oh, yeah. his feet up, like a Corso is a big ass dog. <laughs> yes. yes. And that's the technical yeah, but- description of the Cane <laughs> Corso breed is big ass dog. Big ass dog. Yeah. The one I'm working with right now, she's like 140 pounds. So, and this is a male um, in this case. So um, probably bigger. So while I'm standing there trying not to blink too heavily, breathe too heavily, move my head, the client is kind of nervously giggling and saying, oh, yeah, sometimes he acts really weird with people and is like continuing to set up chairs for us to sit on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm standing there, not moving, barely breathing, saying, OK, I think you need to come get him. Can you can you why don't you come over here? Could you call him? Could you? And Yeah. That was, that was the longest uh, 30 seconds of my life. Definitely. Yeah. So here's the problem. I don't know a single dog pro who takes these kinds of cases who ha- doesn't have a story like this. That's yeah. why we're talking today. Because, because we have both learned through scary shit happening how to have this not happen. Because again, you know, education in our field is kind of all over the place. And there isn't a school for stay safe when you go into people's homes, which is why we're talking about it. Um, There's a lot of different things going on as far as that statement goes. And I don't know about you, but like I've had all kinds of scary things that then made me change the way that I approach things the next time. (laughs) And then eventually I stopped going to people's houses, to be honest. (laughs) But... You know, like you texted me once and said, I'm meeting this client. I should be done at this time because like you weren't sure about this guy. Right. Right. Like there's things like that too that go on. So it's really important that we all stay safe out there. The Corso might not even be the scariest thing um, that exists. So, (laughs) (laughs) so you survived. I'll tell one of mine. I went to this home for excessive barking. It was a kuvas that lived out on property, 
kind of ideal place for a kubas to live, except that the kubas ran up and down the driveway, you know, barking at trucks, delivery trucks, barking at the fence line, barking, 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 right? And they had a couple of other dogs as well, but kubas is the one that I was called in for. And so right out the gate today, I would listen to that and I would go, hmm, this is probably going to be a stranger directed aggression situation. Then I went, okay, we'll come in. We'll do my normal. I did my big assessment in the first session face-to-face with people in those days, right? <laughs> right? So we sat down at the kitchen table and I'm first of all noticing the assortment of e-collars hanging on the wall and the fact that when I showed up, there wasn't full fencing around the property either. So there's, you know, I'm kind of picking up little clues all over the place. I'm sitting at the table. The, I'm taking some notes. I'm asking some questions. I'm asking about the e-collars. The dog wears a barrier collar as well as, as, well as a bark collar. So like an invisible fence plus a bark collar all the time. And I'm, you know, in my fully dogmatic BS era because we're talking at least 15 years ago, probably longer. And so I start to go into my spiel about how, you know, we're not going to use those anymore, which is just such a cute joke at this point, because then (laughs) the kubas comes over and it's a big, big table, like kind of a handmade big um, farm style, like wooden table. And the kubas comes striding over to one of the owners and looks at me across the table and I look away from him and yawn intentionally. And at my yawn, he came across the table towards me. Yikes. I happen to have in my bait bag what I, I shouldn't say this anymore, but I always refer to it as cracked chicken, which is chicken boiled in honey water. So it's sweet. And it's a, it's a dog show trick. Like a lot of the dog show folks will use it for dogs that are stressed at dog shows and won't eat other stuff. And I took a handful of it and flung it at the dog. And very luckily, he stopped and ate it. Wow. And then I said, can you get a hold of him and put a leash on him, please? And then finished the consult. So (laughs) that's not the only story that I have like that. It's one of the most memorable because, again, because Kubas, to be honest, kind of like yours is really memorable because it was a Corso. I was also the only client dog that ever bit me was a Maltese. And it's because <laughs> I was also there for barking and I arrived and uh-huh. she opened her door and the little teeny tiny comes sprinting across and bites, bites me right in the shin. And like, I was wearing jeans and I had a welt and a bruise and it was a Maltese. Wow. So like she bit me with everything she had and I went out. was and a Maltese. Oh, <laughs> well, I went out and the lady just went, Oh, did she get you? Come on in. Uh, (laughs) oh good you get to see what she does yeah yeah and so like that's the only bite that I sustained because I was lucky in a few other situations but like it's a Maltese so we laugh about this had that been the Kuvas I'd have been in the hospital right it would have been a totally different situation so (laughs) um my only bite by the way okay this always cracks me up because as behavior professionals How many times do we say like breed, not that breed doesn't matter, 
but that you can't judge a dog's level of safety or aggression by breed. Sure. Yeah. Right? I mean, some people say it doesn't matter, but not here, not in this house. <laughs> not here. <laughs> and yet when I tell people the only bite I ever sustained was from a um, Cavalier King Charles. Which is honestly, of be- <laughs> that's astonishing. That's actually astonishing. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I've it had is. an entire table of professional trainers go, what? A Cavalier? No. Right, because they are <laughs> the loveliest little dogs. Yeah. Like, yeah. Tip- typically, typical Cavalier behavior is not to bite you. But that's why, you know, that's why some people are so adamant about not worrying about breed at all. Right, right. So similar to your Maltese comment, the um, King Charles lady said, oh, that's weird. He usually really likes women. He only has a problem with men. As I can, as I then go into the house and take the history, the dog had only been around her and her husband, didn't like the husband. And so from that, she decided the dog liked women. See this. I mean, that's the, that is the way your clients are going to assess situations, which is why it's important right. for you to do the assessment. That is, right. that's so real. So, Okay. In these cases, I think the biggest, most glaring problem right up front is you're working stranger directed aggression and you are a stranger. So you literally are the trigger. Yeah. The trigger that, and the potential target. You, you are. And so that's why you have to be so careful with this stuff. So in and, these... Go ahead. I was going to say, and when you're walking in... All we have is like, maybe I have a backpack and a bait bag full of treats. Yes. That's like, that's all you got. You could carry more. Like, honestly, you could carry spray shields. You could carry other forms of protection. Like you could. Um, But generally speaking, like you're at the mercy of the situation. And so that's why we want to do such a careful risk assessment, and then set up the session safely. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I think a huge, you know, we've got kind of our red flags, like, or not red flags, but like we've got our problems. Number one is that you are a stranger and you're working a stranger directed case. Number two is that your clients are not trained to handle these dogs. And this isn't about us being like, oh, people, people can't handle their dogs. They're so dumb. Like, it took uh, practice, education, like it is no joke to handle one of those dogs. Those people, I don't expect them to be an expert in this. And then, Absolutely yeah, not. all you got is your bait bag. And honestly, I've had dogs who've had bad training before who saw the bait bag and were like, uh-uh, get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then what, how much does that first impression matter? It's Really, it is, as you start working with these cases, it is critical, I think, for any sort of um, progress. Because in order to help the client, we have to figure out what this dog needs to be able to safely meet and interact with someone, usually in the home. And if that dog's first impression starts off as perceiving you as a threat and reacting to you as if you are a threat, you are constantly going to be working backwards, right? Yes. You know, it's, it's like a 
you know, you see a man at your bedroom window in the middle of the night and you freak out, right? And uh, yeah. tell him yeah. to go away. <laughs> and then the next morning he shows up at my front door with roses. I'm still, I'm, I mean, I'm still telling him to go away, but even if it was, review, Lisa, That's let's get, me. let's get real. If it, if, yeah, if it were reversed, I would still tell him to go away, but yeah, that's why you yeah. said you, <laughs> <laughs> or also just kind of first impressions matter to us. Like if you have a bad, if you have a bad taste in your mouth about somebody, you're now having to come back from that. Like if the person doesn't start at a neutral, at least. Like if a person starts at a neutral with you, you have a better shot of forming a good relationship with that person. If the person starts at a negative with you, you're now needing to get up to neutral before you can even talk about positive. So we aren't going to go into the kind of depth on risk assessment that I know you can go into. I have to, I have to keep you keep the reins short on this one because this is a special area of expertise for you. And I know that you could talk for three hours about it. So I will, (laughs) I'll just take a moment to say (laughs) you do talk at length about it in your uh, stranger directed aggression course that's upcoming. And I'm sure that's not the last time that I'll plug it, but um, (laughs) it is, it is the first. (laughs) So, and really, and really it is just that I've seen it. And it is excellent. And so I will keep plugging it. But basically, the risk assessment piece is a huge piece for you. For you. You've really done the deep work on this. And so that's why we're going to keep it to some really bare bones bullet points. So dive in. First of all, how are you doing this risk assessment? Are you doing it when you walk in the door? <laughs> um, so based on the story I, I just told and many, many others, I no longer... Um, just walk in the front door without a full history and a, a very full picture of that dog. Yeah. So I do all my first sessions virtually. Yeah. And those are huge because um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of just sending a client an intake form and say, fill this out. Because honestly, the information that they provide doesn't usually give me a very clear view. So I have to ask follow-up questions anyway. So mm-hmm. I prefer that face-to-face. But also it gives me a chance to not just get information about the behavior they're calling me on, but to also specifically ask about other behaviors that might be present. And just like we just demonstrated, two of the scariest incidents we had were not originally, we were not originally called for stranger-directed aggression. Right? Basically, no one is going to call you and say, this is a stranger-directed aggression case. They're going to say something else. They might say the word reactive has really made it into the pet owning vernacular, Mm -hmm. I think. So um, they'll say my dog's reactive to people a lot of the time. Or they'll say my dog's reactive to Uncle Joe who comes over twice a week. Like (laughs) my dog's reactive to children. So I think the word reactive is always, I basically assume that that means aggressive and then work backward. Like I just make that assumption. But they say other things, like barking. The two that I talked about were I was called for barking. As I just explained to a client the other day, her dog had an incident of barking that would have previously been an incident of biting. So the dog has made significant improvement because she did not bite. She only barked. 
However, the client's going, so she wasn't aggressive. And I went, "Mm, she was. Right. (laughs) She was. (laughs) She just didn't bite. (laughs) She just didn't snarl, snap, lunge. Right. But the barking she did was also aggressive. So like barking, that's just, God, there's so, in fact, I've got a podcast in my head that I haven't recorded yet about um, the relativity of barking. (laughs) Right. Barking is never just barking. No, never. Never. Um, Yeah. So, so I use this, this first virtual session to, to get that history. A lot of times I get to see the dog you know, because the dog's sitting on the couch next to them or interacting with them. And what's huge for me is I get to see that what that dog looks like relaxed. Because that's going to come into play much later. Um, I need to know what that looks like. The other thing that I really like about this is I will often ask clients to give me a quick tour of not the entire house, but their front door, the entryway, you know, the main areas where the dog hangs out, maybe the dog's confinement space, because that can be really, really helpful information in not just my risk assessment, but also in preparing for the initial appointment. And so I would imagine too, that one of the major questions you're trying to kind of ascertain is, does this dog actually have any friends? Like, have you been keeping this dog under lock and key for how long? Like, don't, how important is that to you? It's huge. It's, it's really, for me, it's huge in any aggression case, but especially in these cases where, you know, I'm walking, I could be walking into the home. I want to know how many dogs and, and this is how I frame it with clients is how many dogs or how many people has the dog allowed in their circle of trust, right? I call it the circle of trust Mm -hmm. where like once they're in, they're in, they, you know, they can pretty much do just about anything with the dog. And I specifically ask them, you know, if the dog is over two, then I specifically want to know how many people the dog has allowed in that circle of trust since adulthood, because it's so common for people to say, well, the people in his circle of trust are, you know, these three friends or family members that he met when we first brought him home at eight weeks old. Right. 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 And that's very different. Because they're so much more open to forming those relationships when they are younger. And it is really important to continue to, if you're going to have kind of an open door and a big social life with this dog, continue to introduce them to people and people don't know that people, right. They don't, they get a puppy. So everybody wants to see their puppy and then it's not a puppy anymore and it's over. So, okay. So how many people is the dog allowed in the circle of trust since adulthood is a, is a big, big question that you're trying to figure out. And I would imagine on a lot of these cases, it's like "Mm, zero, one, which is rough. And yeah, the, the number The number tells me, like, the number that they give me, not the number. If they have, like, one versus five or six, Mm. that that is already informing how I want to have my first setup with this dog. Absolutely. I do have some that are, like, none. 
We have not ever been able to successfully introduce this dog or we've introduced the dog, but he was never fully comfortable, right? Continued to growl if the person got up and went to the bathroom and then right. came out again, like right. just barely yeah. holding that together. So Good information. I have others. Yeah, I do have others that they're, you know, they're like, well, this person and this person and they, oh, oh, and there was this person and, you know, and the more the more, the higher the number, the better I feel about my ability to form a relationship with that dog. So that while we're working together. And then kind of moving on from that, I think that's a really important thing that um, might not be in everybody's intake questionnaire in their mind or in their virtual first session, because that first session, as we said, should be virtual. You're asking specifics about the reasons the person called like, you know, dog became reactive towards uncle Tommy who came over. Tell me exactly how that looked and what are you looking for in descriptions of the aggression? Really the, the big one. I mean, there's a lot of pieces that I'm looking at, including what the behavior actually was. um, If there was injury, the level of injury and where the injury was if the dog gave any warnings, how much effort that dog needed to needed to use to get to the stranger and what what level of intervention was needed to end that incident. So, but out of, you know, and within that I'm asking many questions on each one of those points, but one of the the big big pieces even without having all of those specifics, I'm looking at whether or not the the dog's behavior was offensive or defensive. Did that dog choose to close distance to threaten or bite when they had the option to avoid? And that one, you know, I will tell you both when I was doing risk assessments in the shelter and when I'm doing them in the home, that that one piece really is a big indicator of high risk. Meaning that if the dog will close distance to act aggressively towards someone, that is a higher risk situation than a dog that is, that was cornered or was approached by, by the person. And it's a major, it's a major point. I think that instead the language sometimes folks use is like provoked or unprovoked when like, as far as the dog is concerned, it was always provoked Right. (laughs) Like it's not about provocation. It is about did the dog close distance or did the person close distance? Right. Right. Did the dog have and what options did they choose? Yeah. And I love to see a dog choosing to move away. And in fact, you know, it's a big thing that I look for in my own dogs, like in their communication with each other. Like if somebody chooses to walk away from something, I praise them. I tell them they're perfect. I give them whatever it was that a moment just happened over, right? Like I make a big deal of it. And I literally in my intra-household management, like I train them move away cues too, to help them to kind of make that choice. So, and then I know that there is a biggie, that you you number one have to know before you get there and number two you're gonna have to work on it before you work on anything else if it's not there yeah which is can this dog be confined and 
this is huge. And um, as I've told you before, separation anxiety was never the behavior I wanted to get into. That's not the one that I, you know, really is um, as satisfying for me. And yet, because at least half of my caseload involves dogs with stranger directed aggression that have bite histories. That dog being able to not only be safely confined, but confined without distress, right? The dog can go in another room or go in a crate, be comfortable, lie there, isn't experiencing FOMO, isn't getting all worked up. It is, it is one of the most important skills that these dogs need. And so I find in most of my cases, this is what, this is one of the first things that we work on. Well, because it's literally make or break, because if you can't separate the dog from the trigger without causing the dog stress or distress, you won't actually get anywhere. And I also don't take separation anxiety cases. I love to refer those out to the experts. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Truly the number of cases that I have that as we dig into it, we find really unacceptable levels of stress with confinement is it's a lot of cases and it really affects everything. It just does. You need to be able to, basically, this is my plug for teaching the dog to be comfortable waiting in a crate, waiting behind a gate. I also teach dogs to hang out on tethers these days, like all of that stuff. And it doesn't happen overnight. It is going to be a process. You can't just start doing it. Like Carson's nine months old. She's not perfect with this. Rhea is three. I would say Rhea is not perfect with it either because Rhea is such an easy dog that I don't have, I don't ask her to do it enough. Right. Uh, (laughs) You know, but it's, it's really, really important. And I think that's an important point. Like so many of the people in these cases are, they just avoid having people over right? That's the way they're managing it. So this hasn't been something they're working on. Right. Right. But in order for these cases to be manageable and for us to make them more manageable as quickly as possible, we have to start with confinement. Okay. So we've got kind of, did the dog close distance? How many folks are in the circle of trust? Can the dog be confined? I know that you've got a much longer list than that. Oh yeah. But that's where we're going to stop because we've got to dig into the actual setups and how we're going to look at the setups. But I do know that you look at the home on Google, like with the street view. So you get a tour in your virtual call of the home, but you also put that address in and have a look at it. Because the other thing you're trying to do in that virtual session is decide where are we meeting this first time. Right. Right. And. I've learned, you know, I've gleaned some really important information just by looking on Street View. I'm not stalking my clients, but if that house is on a corner and there's big windows, right, where the dog can be watching passersby, or if the dog has a fully fenced yard, but that part of that fence is either chain link or wrought iron, and again, not only do they have views of people passing by, but they're practicing aggressive behavior and successfully, right? They bark, they growl, the person goes away. I also find that 
you know, I can also tell things, things that may not necessarily come up in a history. Is there a school across the street? Is there a school behind the house? Like what other pieces are there? It can also give me a really good sense of if I went to meet them at the home, is there room outside the home for us to start the initial setup? Right. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Absolutely. So ideally in that first session that is virtual, you guys are deciding where you're going to meet and what that's going to look like. And then I would imagine then that you give them some homework before you see them the first time. Always, always. Because um, I want the client and the dog to have some skills before the first session so that they already have something that they can be reinforcing. It can make our, our setups go a little bit smoothly and we can hit the ground running. And for, for some of these cases, I'm not going to be walking into the house because I've determined that the dog is such high risk that we're going to be meeting off site. And so the dog is going to need some, some skills before we do that as well. Okay. So let's get into where you're meeting the first time. You kind of have two options. It's you're either meeting at the dog's home or you're not. Right. So we're going to talk about both. Let's dig into offsite setups, right. why you might choose an offsite setup and what those look like. Yeah. I mean, the offsite setups are for those dogs. Maybe they've never met someone successfully. Maybe they, or, or there's just enough there in that snapshot risk assessment for me to go, mm, this probably is not going to go well if I just come into the home. So, so I do meet offsite and the, the places I end up meeting the most are I look for a big empty parking lot on the weekends that's a lot of business parks are very nice like they're very park like they have you know grassy areas and things like that but you know they're pretty vacant on the weekend you're also not likely to run into too many dogs out there during the week a lot of churches have big empty parking lots and in some areas you know, you might have like a big, like some of our, our shopping centers with big box stores that have since closed down. And so that entire section of the parking lot is just unused. I like parking lots a lot because fewer distractions, but also I find the lines for the parking spaces to be really good guides for giving clients directions and also good guides for me on gauging how much progress we made, how close is too close. So I like I like parking lots. Yeah, parking lots tend to be great. I especially like them if there's some vegetation. I think that dogs prefer there to be some vegetation. And yeah. like you said, those business parks a lot of the time do have quite a bit of vegetation. I I like those. I know you use those a lot on your weekend yeah. setups. So what if these people need to be like 100 feet from you or more? Like what? 100 a hundred feet is good. You're like, you're like hundred feet is, I mean, it's probably just my inability to measure space. Um. Right. How many Karanda beds away do they have to be? How many lengths um, of my minivan are they, are they away? Um, so yeah, when we're meeting at these offsite locations, I have my clients bring a headset for their phone. And 
this way we can start at whatever distance the dog needs to be looking pretty relaxed and comfortable, but I can continue to guide the client. I can be asking questions. If I if they're far enough away, I can't see body language. I can be asking some different pieces. And it's it's huge. I mean, that piece was a real game changer for me when I started doing things at that level. Instead of having to be close enough to the client to speak to them, which often is too close for these dogs. And when we get to these parking lots, I I usually wait in my car and I tell the client to get the dog out of the car. Obviously, they're um, they're on leash and they're at a distance and give that dog time to sniff and acclimate to the environment. Right. How many times do you see when a dog gets to a new place? They they can't think they can't eat. They just need to take everything in. So I really want them to give that dog a little bit of time to explore until they see the dog is more engaged with them. And that engagement piece, like that could be a homework piece as well. You might even, yeah. do you ever send somebody to the location ahead of time? Um, I have in some yeah. cases. Yeah. Especially if the dog already has a history of being just really anxious in new places, for sure. Okay. And the distance is really measured by the dog's body language. You are looking for an actual relaxed kind of body and the dog's ability to do things for food from the person and those sorts of things. And so that's really judged on, like I would imagine that you err on the side of way too far. Like that's something that I I try to emphasize a lot with folks because I think people have a tendency to start too close. The dog has a blow up. And then they back off and it's just way, way better to start way too far away and work in than the other way around. And, and that's where I think really differentiating between, you know, what some people describe as under threshold, and this could be its whole podcast as, you know, an absence of signs of anxiety. Well, you know, that varies a lot and dogs can be they can be eating, they can be working, they can be responsive, but there are other signs that tell me that they are not relaxed. And I don't know if relaxed is the right word. That's the word I have in my head. Some people might think relaxed means chilling out on their bed in front of the fire, but just generally what I'm looking for is obvious signs in their body language that they are they are relaxed, right? Their tail's in a neutral position, not low, not high, their body's loose. They're freely offering behaviors to their handlers, right? Especially behaviors that I had them working on before we met up. Um, I also want to make sure, and one of the things I'm asking clients on when we're on our headsets, you know, how, how soft is the dog's mouth when they're taking treats? Because that's not something I can see. Right. So if, you know, that dog generally takes treats very gently and then they're snatching it out of their owner's hand. I'm not going to be able to observe that necessarily. I need the client to tell me that. And I also notice, you know, in looking at so many videos of these dogs, the difference in how the dog moves when they're nervous, they might be doing all the things that look relaxed. But they're, the way they move their head, the way they do things is just very jerky, right? Um, 
And, and that's also an indication that they are not relaxed. And you want the dog to be aware of the fact that you're there. Like it is important that the dog knows that you're there because you are the first stranger that you are working into the dog's circle of trust. And so it's important that they know you're there, but you kind of have this um, smart little piece of data that what you're paying attention to is how much attention does the dog pay to the handler versus the professional? And essentially you just want them mostly paying attention to the handler. Yeah. And, and, and again, there comes that piece of engagement, not paying attention to the handler because the handler is baiting them with food or calling their name or, you know, otherwise in a training session, I want to see that the dog is aware that I'm there. They can look at me, but they're like, yeah, whatever. Right. They're I'm neutral. And they go back to the more interesting person, which is their, their human who has the treats and is doing fun stuff. And maybe when they first see me, they don't immediately start out like that. They're a little more interested in me, but not upset. They're still, you know, again, all these other pieces, I want them to primarily be calm. But if they're looking at me more than they're looking at their handlers, then we're going to take that time until the dog says, okay, that person's not only not a threat, but boring. So these dogs that you're meeting offsite in these office parks, you're choosing that because they're the higher risk dogs. They're the ones that are closing distance. They are the ones that don't have a lot of friends um, after adulthood. But you are now in an office park with the owner handling a potentially dangerous animal around you. So other than distance, like what other precautions are you taking? Because I know I had a situation where the owner was the foster person actually was handling the dog and we were parallel walking and the dog just cut in front of them and lunged at me. And I mean, it was within a couple of feet that I am just lucky that the dog was wearing a gentle leader. And so when it hit the end of the leash, it, you know, got its head whipped back as opposed to it just hitting a collar. Cause it was, it was a St. Bernard. So it's not like it couldn't have pulled this person straight down. <laughs> so talk about that a little bit. What equipment are, yeah, the, are we using yeah. here? Yeah. I mean, when I'm taking a history, I, I am asking about the dog's current level of training and, and I'm asking the owner to rate the dog's reliability with that because People are pretty honest. Um, I would say they're very honest. And so if they tell me that the dog's leash skills are, you know, a D minus, then then I'm going to, you know, I am going to either recommend certain equipment, recommend double leashing, or, you know, with these really big dogs doing, um, you know, doubling up, having a gentle leader and a front clip harness right? And having either, you know, double leashing or double clip on that. So the client has really good skills. Um, And the equipment sometimes includes a muzzle. And if it's something where I'm really feeling like the dog is going to need a muzzle, we're going to take time before we meet in person to condition that. Absolutely. And on that note, I do think it's just kind of important to mention because you mentioned a couple of specific pieces of equipment. Also, I do think it's important to allow, especially in the beginning, these owners to use the equipment that they're comfortable with. 
So if the dog is walked on a prong collar and you're a professional who does not utilize prong collars, it is still wise of you to allow the person to use the thing they're most comfortable using while you, you know, you could potentially work towards other tools if that's your preference, but taking away something that makes somebody feel safe is simply unwise, simply unwise. And so I I think that that's kind of worth mentioning. I don't, I don't think that on the, you know, on, on the same side of the coin is basically that I want this dog effectively managed, but also I want this person to feel like they can effectively manage. Like those, those are the same thing. So if the person rates the dog's uh, skills out. If the person rates the dog's leash walking skills a B plus and they're using a prong, if you take away the prong, we're now down to, you know, a D minus, right? Like it's, right. it's just important that you let people have like what makes them feel safer. And if it's yes. important to you, you can help them get away from those tools at a later date. If that's important to you. Or if there is an indication that that tool may be exacerbating the problem. It doesn't always. It but, doesn't always. But it I, can. And I think that's important. It can. And no, I completely agree with you. I want the client to feel safe. I will tell you that most of my clients, when they're using those tools, they don't necessarily want to be using hmm. them, but that is the thing that they have landed on. And I no longer go into any sort of lecture about, you know, aversives and what they could do and blah, blah, blah. I'm already in the door. They're already paying me to get them where they want to be. So pretty much what I will do in those situations is, you know, if we're talking about a really big dog, I am not going to feel comfortable that a prong collar is going to hold it together while that dog is lunging at me. I've seen plenty of them pull apart. You just need, right. You absolutely just, you need a safety measure, whether it's a prong, whether it's a gentle leader, whether it's how many, how many front connection harnesses are just so poorly fitted that the dog could step out of them any, any given time. And you're not going to walk over there and fit it for them. So you're (laughs) okay. You're also not going to walk over and inspect the prong. And like, it's really And going back to, I think that there's a misconception that certain tools cause certain problems. I just don't think that's real. If a tool causes stress to the dog, you are exacerbating the problem. So if the dog is, I've seen dogs that were so highly distressed by a head halter that they could barely function. And in which case anything else would be kinder. Your dog is so highly stressed or was, he's doing better now, but like was so highly stressed by a harness when you first got him that it exacerbated Mm -hmm. all of your problems. You literally couldn't use it. Right. For the first two years. Two years. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. If I put a harness on him, he was like a cat. He was frozen. He was low to the ground. He would run and hide under the bed and I couldn't get right. Right. That's aversive. Um, it's so, really yeah. bad. So we are, <laughs> so yeah, we are, we are not pro con the equipment we're talking about. Um, it's absolutely, I mean, a big part of what I'm looking at when I'm looking at pieces of equipment is, is the dog, is the dog truly okay? Are they comfortable in that equipment? 
I have a lot of clients in these cases that do have gentle leaders because they do feel more secure having that control totally. in the head. I would. But if the dog is agitated by it, if the dog is agitated from that going on, just going on, you know, we all know about trigger stacking, right? We all know that stress compounds. And so if the dog is agitated and then I'm appearing and trying to do a session, right, that's, that can affect our progress. So it compounds and also, and I'm bringing this up because I know trainers that do this intentionally, you can cause the dog to be so concerned about the thing it's wearing that they don't do the other behavior that you are trying to take care of. Yeah. And all that is, is suppression. And if your plan is suppression, because some folks plan might be suppression. If your plan is suppression, you need to make sure that you are replacing that, you know, absence of that behavior with other skills. Like it is so important that you don't just go well case closed when it's wearing this, it doesn't do it. Right. That ain't it. Right. (laughs) That ain't it. How many cases have you seen where the dog was well muzzle trained, right? That they did a great job, but then the muzzle only went on before the scary thing happened. And now that becomes conditioned to Oh yeah. Predict. All the time. Because of course. Because just like all the other tools, like when you mentioned clients don't necessarily want to be using this, in my experience, they don't want to use anything. They want to snap the leash onto the collar that the dog already wears and walk out the door. Like that's what, that's what we, that's what they want to be doing. They don't want to have to tack up the dog (laughs) before they go out. (laughs) Right. And so the same with the muzzle. So they don't use it when they're not going to necessarily need it. So that's where like, if I'm going to be using a muzzle, for instance, in veterinary settings, like it's a hundred percent of the time, it's all the time whenever we're here. And then part of my muzzle training is also that you wear it and we go on a hike and you're just wearing it and you, whether you kind of need it or not, and you're just enjoying nature in it. So yeah, I think any tool can be conditioned like that. Any tool can be predictive. They're in fact, always going to be predictive of something. So make sure that they're predictive of like, eating yummy cookies and hanging out on a mat and being being chill. But so I think that I think that a lot of folks are still going to want to meet in home for these cases. And you certainly acknowledge that there are lower risk situations where you are going to meet in the home. And also you're probably trying to move these higher risk situations into the home. Eventually you're just starting in an office park. Yeah. So let's talk about in home meetings. How are we staying safe in that situation? Yeah, first when I'm if I'm doing an in-home, it's because either the the history tells me this is where it's okay to start, or we've gotten to the point outside the home that we're ready to now to start in the home. So I think the, you know, we were we were talking about dog equipment. Here's where I want to talk about the trainer's equipment and what they need for safety. I mentioned before, like I walk in with a backpack that has all my paperwork and my goodies and all of that and a treat bag. Like that is generally what I'm walking into these houses with. And that's one of the reasons is because I've already, you know, I already have a good picture now. Now I ask this question. Um, Now I, now I get that picture before I walk in. Whereas, you know, like we were talking before, you and I didn't necessarily do that. 
in the past. Mm -hmm. So I usually know what I'm walking into. I do have the bag. I mean, a backpack can be a really nice defensive tool, right? If something Mm -hmm. goes really, really wrong and the dog is coming at you, you can just keep feeding the dog the bag. Let them bite the bag until the owner can can get a handle on them. The other one that I think is really important when I'm working these cases are some really nice solid boots. And the reason for that is a case that I had, again, many, many years ago, where it was an English bulldog, also not there for stranger directed aggression. I walk in, dog is lunging, barking. I'm doing the thing that we, you know, we have been told to do, which is just keep tossing treats regardless of what the dog is doing. And, you know, eventually they'll calm down. He was eating every single one of the treats that I was tossing for half an hour. And he was not calming down. Now I look at that and go, well, duh. Um, (laughs) It's the burglar throwing $100 bills at me through my bedroom window. Yeah, not not helpful. So um, I had the owner put the dog behind a baby gate. And he put him behind the baby gate. I heard the gate close. The baby gate was across like a hallway. So the dog could still see in the living room. I'm in an armchair that has very high arms, like one of those club chairs, Mm -hmm. right? And I start talking to the owners and out of the corner of my eye, I see movement and I look and I see the baby gate door swinging open. (laughs) (laughs) I only have time to say he's out before the dog is at me. Now, because of the high chairs of the arm, he came around to the front of me and all I could do in that moment was shove my foot out front and keep feeding, you know, just kept mm-hmm. moving my foot and he just kept biting the bottom of my tennis shoe. That day, I immediately went out and ordered some steel toe boots. That was very, that was a very scary situation. And I was stuck and I had nowhere I could go. So, you know, it's not a lot. Um, but 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 having having some solid solid boots having a backpack can can really keep you safe if things go sideways what about something like spray shield or even a pet corrector that's the can of compressed air is that not like i'm big on those things mm-hmm. mostly for when i'm out and about in the world with my dogs to protect us from other people's dogs right but I, if I were going into homes now, I would always have that on my belt. What do you, what do you say about that? I, I mean, I don't think you're wrong. I, it's just not something. It's just I, not one of those I tools have. that you utilize. Yeah, I know. And I think it's, you know. um, which is, I, I think it just kind of varies. And I think for me, I got really comfortable using it when I worked in like shady dog daycares. Sure. And <laughs> So that's why it's on my, on my person. Like when I'm out with my dogs, like it's just on the fanny pack that I use when I'm out in the world. And it would be if I were seeing in-person clients as well. I think I might buy you some just and say, (laughs) you know, and part of, part of it is, you know, with my, with my ADHD brain, it's Mm -hmm. one more thing I have to remember. Yeah, that's why it's just on and your belt, just stays there. 
but then I, before I leave the house, I have to find it to put it on my belt. No, just stay there. It's just there. It's on your tree pouch belt is what I'm saying. But which tree pouch and where is it? Is it in my car? Oh my God. I'm already, I'm formulating a gift package that is going to blow your mind. You know, and the other thing I will say is that in these situations, I didn't have a whole lot of time to think. Right. Right. Um, Yeah, I totally coach my clients on when this, put your hand on this. The first thing you do is put your hand on this. And for real, the dog coming at you, it just would have been like, as you're feeding your tennis shoe to the bulldog. You could also reach for it and then protect yourself. I'm just saying it might be a good idea. (laughs) I, you know, and this is another conversation that we can, you know, we can have later. There is that part of me, I think, that would also (laughs) worry as the people pleaser about the client's impression. Like the dog didn't actually bite me. The dog didn't actually injure me. And I did this thing to their dog, right? That's. Oh, for sure, Lisa. Like, it has to be discussed ahead of time. I would even show it to them on the virtual call. Like, I'm not hoping to, like, change the way that you do things. But if people are listening and they might want yeah. that little bit of information. So, it, yeah, you've got to have that discussion and say, this is something I use to keep myself safe. It is. This is what it is. It's not mace. It's very safe. Like, you know, that sort of thing. You have that conversation ahead of time because for sure, I know that my clients who I tell to use it, are mortified that they'll have to then explain themselves to a person out on the trails. And so it is that it just needs to be discussed. And I find like when I have seen in-person clients, I have used it and I have always just said, this is what this is. I don't plan on needing it because we've got everything set up to where I'm not going to need it, but it is simply to keep me safe or, you know, I'll explain, like, maybe we're working a dog reactivity setup. I'll say, you know, let's say somebody does show up here and let their dog out of their car. I'm going to want this to protect, you know, uh, your dog and theirs from whatever might happen. Like, it's just kind of a, for me, it is a seatbelt sort of like safety thing of you hope never to need it. Right. And when you explain it to the clients ahead of time, they are comfortable with it. It's when anybody is surprised by it that it is a problem. Yeah. I agree. There's, there's also some really good webinars out there on defensive handling Mm -hmm. that any, any professional who either is already seeing these cases or is thinking about taking these cases. If you haven't taken and if you don't have any training on defensive handling, that's also a must. It's number one before you go on any one of these cases. I know um, Michael Shikashios is free on his website. And and I refer people to it a lot because there's, yeah, it's, it's beyond having a backpack in a bag of treats. It is, you know, all of that. But I do think that's important. And I think especially, you know, we have so many stories that we can go into that, of these things that have happened to both of us. This is what happens when, when you're relatively, I mean, it could happen to me now, um, knock on wood, but when you're relatively inexperienced and you're not necessarily aware of all the ways that these things can go wrong, you may not be as 
as prepared. And so it is definitely helpful to have extra backup when you need it, for sure. So we've gone through some safety equipment. How are you getting in the house? Because I think that that's where things go wrong for a lot of trainers, even if you try really hard to make that not go wrong. (laughs) How are you getting into the house without a, oh, good, you get to see what he does moment? Yeah. (laughs) Yep, that's what he does. That's why you're here. What should I do when he does that? That's my other favorite one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. So first thing, this goes back to the confinement training. I want the dog confined in a space where they cannot see the front of the house. They cannot see me entering through the front door. In some cases, that has been the client putting the dog in the car in the garage. The dog is not agitated, right? They're like, they're comfortable doing that. They have to have a long history of being comfortable doing that. But Something along those lines. So the dog is not watching me enter because, you know, if you've got a dog with a long history of barking at passersby and barking at delivery people and that being really effective, right, that has been reinforced because the people always go away. And then you have someone who's walking up to the front door and isn't going away. And then the door opens and they start walking in. Well, now the barking and growling has been ineffective and the dog is going to escalate, right? So Yeah, that was my Maltese. That's exactly what that was. Yeah. And I have a colleague that had something like that happen where the dog was in the backyard and was barking from the sliding glass door. So it could see her walk in, could see her in the space, was barking and lunging. She was watching the dog and felt like the dog had calmed down to a certain level. Owner opened the sliding glass door. Dog made a beeline for her and bit her multiple times. So I I think that visual is really, really important to make sure that the dog isn't watching someone come into their space. So from there, once the dog is confined, I come in, I have another chat with the client. I ask some, you know, I either ask some of the same questions I got during the history, um, just to make sure I'm getting consistent responses about how the dog usually behaves. And I'm really giving them the game plan for what I want to happen when the dog comes in. I'm telling them, you know, specifically, I want them on leash, I tell them, you know, I want you to get go to this specific place and start feeding, right, or drop treats or Right. I am giving them very, very clear and easy instructions, because if I don't give them those instructions, inevitably what happens is they will bring the dog in on leash. The dog will be moving towards me and the client will follow them. Right. And I know it is wild what to do. Right. And I think here's where I do think that we all need some lessons kind of in assertiveness sometimes. Yes. Um, especially, you know, AFAB individuals were not raised to be assertive and were raised to be polite. And it is really, really important that you take the wheel here. Like it is so important that you like I think that people feel awkward. They're in this person's home. They're like there's other social conditioning that they're allowing to step in here. You are the professional they need you to tell them exactly what to do and they need you to be very specific and clear. Like it isn't. Yeah. Well, what do you think? 
it isn't, well, go ahead and just bring them on in. Like, no, it is do this, do this, do this, do this. As I say to our friend, Marissa, when I help, when I consult on some of her cases, I say, who's driving the bus, Marissa? (laughs) And and she'll go, ah, she's like, God, I, she's like, I let the client drive the bus again. I was like, yeah, you did. You're driving the bus. So you are driving the bus. So drive it. Drive it. And I, and I can't stress this enough. When we are giving clients these instructions, those instructions need to be what to do, not what not to do. And, you know, so much messaging in our industry is, is all about these, these no messages. Okay. When you come in, don't pull on his leash. Don't yell at him. Don't, right. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this that doesn't tell the client what to do. I mean, we say all the time, don't tell the dog no, because no isn't an instruction. And we need to remind ourselves of that with the clients. We need to be very specific. I want you to bring him in on leash. I want you to stop at this point right here. I want you to feed him. And then we'll, you know, then I will give instructions once we get to that point. So I find that that's really important. And part of those instructions, um, is because I want to make sure the dog isn't moving in a path directly past me or moving towards me. And I want to make sure that we're not putting the dog or myself in any tight spaces where we could get stuck. Right. And that calls back to that initial walkthrough that you did virtually. Yep. And in that walkthrough on that call, you can say, hey, I think this is where we should meet and then make a note of it and then remind them. I think we need to sit down. Remember, we talked about I think we want to sit down in this room and this is how it's going to go. And you're kind of outlining for them exactly how it's going to go. And then, you know, if you're really on top of it, you're even sending them that again as you're heading over there. I used to get in the habit of texting them. When I was leaving and saying, reminder, I need the dog, I need the dog in the crate, in the thing. Originally, I would just say confined. That's not clear enough. Yeah, That's not clear enough. So it has to be, we've decided that the dog will be in the crate, in the garage or whatever it is. And I'll remind them, this is where I need the dog. Anything else as far as that first in-home session for folks to be aware of? I I mean, we could talk all day yes. about little <laughs> little details. Yeah, my my really big thing um, is in the majority of these cases, I am a neutral person. I am not giving the dog treats. I am not handling the dog. I am not, usually I'm not even talking to the dog. I am trying to start out as neutral as possible and I want all of the treats to be coming from their handler because for some of these dogs, a stranger tossing treats is like that burglar tossing hundred dollar bills. It's more interaction than, than they're comfortable with. Right. It's, it's even um, it's, it's even heightens their anxiety in some cases. So I want to be neutral. The person they don't 
they don't have to worry about. And then where we go from there really depends on what I'm seeing. In really, really rare cases in these setups, where again, the dog has a really solid history of multiple positive interactions with people, maybe the problem is limited to the front door. Then I might have the client, you know, I might come in, I'll sit down, I'll position myself, I'll get ready with treats, and then I'll have the client let the dog come in. But I only, and and I can interact with them right away. And there are certainly those dogs, I love these cases, where the dog is like, oh, hey, oh, you're already at the couch. Cool, you have treats. Awesome. Oh, you know how to do training stuff. I know how to do training stuff. Um and, and it really just is a matter of how that dog meets someone. But those cases are rare. I don't just assume that anymore because of all of these very scary experiences that I had in the past. So I want the client doing the handling, doing the training, tossing the treats and all of that. And then where we go from there, what that looks like is how I start crafting my behavior plan. Absolutely. And your behavior plan is going to involve more sessions like this yes. in which you're basically working your way into the dog circle of trust, whatever that's going to look like. You're also building a, you're building a system that the dog can trust that then other people can get plugged into. Right. And this is really the first step, right? Yeah. Can, how can the dog meet someone in the house? Can they meet someone in the house? And then where do we go from there? And all of that and more in your program that is coming out, your Stranger Directed Aggression course. So talk about that a little bit. What's that look like? Um, so, you know, working these cases, I see there there are a lot of people in our industry who who don't have this information and really need it to be more successful in these cases. And so I I started working on a webinar that became a program. Um, and it's a three-part course. And we're going to be talking about all of these things. We're going to be talking about risk assessments. We're going to be talking about setups. We're going to be talking about building behavior plans. We're going to be talking about um, all of the things specific to these cases. Um, so it's a three-part course that starts on March 10th. It's three-part because it's, a, it's two-hour sessions on March 10th, one on March 17th, and one on March 24th. They are all recorded. So if, if someone can't make it to one of those sessions, um, that's okay. They'll get the recording. But this is, I, I want to emphasize, this is specifically for behavior professionals. This is not a course for um, dog owners who have problems with this behavior and want to learn more about working with their dog. Um, this is really about um, behavior professionals and how they assess these cases and build their... And like I said, I've seen it. And I think it is really fantastic. And honestly, it's three sessions and it could have been six. Like it is, there's such a wealth of information um, that you have gathered from just being in the trenches and doing this work that you're ready to give out to professionals in this field. And I think that, you know, whether you are wanting to take on stranger directed aggression cases or you already do it, there's going to be new stuff in here for you. There's going to be improvements to your practice in here for you. 
We will absolutely be linking it um, in the notes, but where can people find it? You can find information um, at my website, serenitycanine.com slash SDA. Yeah, so that's directed aggression. Yeah. Yeah. Stranger directed aggression. So it's slash SDA is where you're going to find it. And all the other information, great information at serenitycanine.com as well. You can check out. Lisa, thank you for doing this deep dive with me today. I think it's going to be an important one. Thank you so much. Someday we may just have to do an episode where we just share war stories. And that's all. (laughs) Let us know, you guys, if you want an entire episode of Times We Almost Died, and we'll pull it together. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.